Welcome back to Two Keto Dudes. This is Carl Franklin from Connecticut in the United States. And in February 2016, I put myself on a ketogenic diet to take control of my metabolism. In just two and a half months, I managed to reverse all my markers of type 2 diabetes with diet alone. As of now, I'm 80 pounds lighter with no signs of diabetes or heart disease. Hi, I'm Richard Morris in Canberra, Australia, and I've been on a ketogenic diet for three years. When I started, I was very sick with complications from type 2 diabetes. Within six months of starting a ketogenic diet, all of my biomarkers of disease had disappeared. I've also lost about 80 pounds, and I've completely turned my health around. And this show is a document of my progress through ketosis and Richard's experience thriving for years in ketosis. Oh, yeah. And hopefully that might help a few people who are curious about this kind of dietary hacking. Yeah, we're not doctors. We don't want to give anyone any medical advice, but we are keen to share our own experiences. We're actually both software developers, so we're not afraid of a little technical detail, are we, Carl? Nah. We've done some research into our own deranged metabolisms and the science behind them. We hope to share some of that research. Where possible, we intend to put links in the show notes to cite research supporting any claims that we make. Yeah, and you'll probably work out pretty quickly that we're both foodies. Oh, yeah. We love to cook and we love to eat. Sure do. In every episode, we both share a keto recipe that cannot be ignored. No, it cannot. Not the way we do our intro into the recipe section. That's right. Hey, and by the way, because you're actually listening to the intro and, you know, we do it live. Yeah, you probably think that we record this once and then we just replay it over and over no, again. No, no, no. We actually record this every single time. So because we want to reward you for listening to our stupid intro here, we're <laughs> going to give you a 10% discount on KetoFest at KetoFest.com if you enter the code LISTENING. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right, Richard, let's start podcast number 66, Fathead Kids with Tom Naughton. So, Richard, do we have any corrections or apologies from last week? Yeah, we have one. Last week was the episode with uh, Dr. Westman, and Dr. Westman mentioned the CSIRO diet. And the CSIRO is an Australian... Um, government governmental science organization. And I mentioned that they were like the US's NIH, and they're really more like the National Institute of Science, which, of which the NIH is a part of. Oh, so it's just like general science, and then it has subgroups that, you know, one for health, one for nuclear research or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Nuclear research. We, uh, they invented Wi-Fi, for example. Oh, no kidding. I also mentioned that they funded research that... Uh, that determine the expansion rate of the galaxy. Well, I guess technically that's also correct, but really it was uh, Dr. Smith's uh, work in discovering the expansion rate of the, of the universe. Oh. And they look after the deep space uh, uh, communication network and cool. uh, a lot of other things besides. But for this diet, uh, they really are the key government-run science organisation in Australia. And for them to come out and say what they said as Dr. Westman said, was this really a, a big deal. So yeah. uh, anyway, I, I just wanted to get that correction on record. Okay. So let's revisit what a ketogenic diet is. Sure. It's uh, less than 20 grams of carbs a day. Yeah. And we want a moderate protein intake, enough mm -hmm. to maintain our body, which for us is between one and one and a half grams per kilogram of lean body mass. Yes. And then we want to get all of our energy from fat. We don't want to get our energy from carbs or uh, protein sources. Mm -hmm. uh, we want to use energy from fat, which could we be fat on your body. It could be fat on your plate. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and that's it in a nutshell. That's how we healed ourselves. It sure mm -hmm. is. Along with the thousands and thousands of other friends we have. Yeah. 
So, buddy, how was your week? Uh, it wasn't a good week. Uh, you oh. know, I lost a dog uh, a month and a half ago. Yeah. And I'm down now to one dog. Well, um, Black Dog, he's the dog that we rescued when we lived in Las Vegas. Yeah. Um, so he is originally an American dog, believe it or not. Hmm. Um, but we had him DNA tested when we got back to Australia, and it turns out that uh, three quarters of his grandsires, which is a dog version of a grandfather, grandparent, um, were Australian cattle dogs. So, wow. um, you know, he, he really was an Australian living in Las Vegas, so <laughs> just like us. Anyway, we, we brought him back to Australia and we travelled around Australia with him, and uh, he's now 15 years old. Yeah. We rescued him from a a, uh, a shelter in uh, Las Vegas. He was about a year and a half old then. Mm. And as best we can tell, he was born roughly around about September 11, 2001. Wow. And that was actually interesting because uh, to a large degree, having him in our family helped us get over the post-traumatic stress yeah. of being eyewitnesses during September 11. We yeah. were only 100 yards away when it happened and oh. we heard and saw a lot of things. So, um, So for me, Black Dog, the name that we gave him was more a uh, a reflection of the depression that uh, from mm-hmm. that event. So he had two violent seizures, uh, both in my arms, mm-hmm. uh, just the other day, and he had to go to hospital. Um, he's come back from hospital. He's living he's, he's living at home now, but he doesn't recognise us, and mm-hmm. he's uh, he's disoriented, and you know he's no longer the, the dog that he was. Oh, so it's a shame. So we're going to have to uh, make a decision on his future this week, which is not good. Um, mm. So this week for me has been pretty sucky, I'm afraid. Oh, that sucks. Yeah, well, I've got no more dogs, so the universe can't do anything more to me. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> so how was your week, mate? hope yours is better. Yeah, mine was better. And my voice is a little hoarse because the uh, the band played last night downtown New London. And, oh, and, yeah, Daddy yeah. Jack's, right? Actually, this was across the street at the social. Oh, okay. Nice. Yeah. Sang my brains out and I'm a little hoarse. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but we just had a great time. And uh, food-wise, eating-wise, I'm, I'm coasting, man. You know, I've got a wedge under my weight loss from fasting. And yeah. uh, I've just ha- – and I haven't had a chance to really get back onto the fast yet. But uh, I really do plan to. It's just not – it's not something that um, I'm I'm avoiding for any reason. I just nah, uh, nah. It's, it, it hasn't been a happens, right? hasn't been a convenient time. I've been too social is the problem. I, <laughs> Add the social. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But I'm I'm enjoying it and I'm enjoying my life and and food and I'm I'm no longer a slave to it and it's just a wonderful feeling. Yeah. Well done, you. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think that brings us to a little segment we call Metal. He's like, what was that? Uh, They've really lost it now, those dudes. Those dudes. So I'm going to go first. I've got uh, one, and this was this is actually from uh, Professor Richard David Feynman, who posted on Facebook, and you probably know uh, this gentleman. He is a professor of uh, biochemistry, and he's a medical researcher Mm -hmm. uh, in New York. He's a Proud Brooklyner, mm-hmm. and uh, he is uh, has done a lot of low carb research. But yeah. he posted on his personal Facebook page the following message: Why do we put up with the sleaze and hostility that we get from Atkins bashers, hmm. especially from the big shots like the Harvard School of Public Health? Hmm. In part, as described in my post on whistleblowers, 
and he will put the link in the show note to that. Yep. It becomes embarrassing to publicise it. It makes us all look bad, and it's depressing. Consider Fung et al., low-carb diets and or cause and cause-specific mortality, two cohort studies. Mm. We'll put the link for that as well. Yep. The first line explains that low-carbohydrate diets have claimed to promote weight loss, improved blood cholesterol levels, and blood pressure. The odd word, of course, is claimed. Claimed? Yeah. Since the second line admits weight loss trials lasting six months to two years have found them to be as effective or more effective than diets with a higher carbohydrate content. Yeah. So there's no claim involved. There's evidence. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. Professor Feynman goes on to say claims does suggest some bias, mm. but the references to uh, low-carb diets helping weight loss and helping blood cholesterol levels mm. uh, are Atkins Nutritionals, and Chauncey KB low-carb dieting for dummies, John Wiley and Sons Incorporated, 2003. Huh. Huh. Not the Atkins book, but the company. And yes, low-carb dieting for dummies. Wow. This is in the Annals of Internal Medicine, now rebranded as JAMA Internal Medicine, not huh. Mother Jones. Wow. Is anybody offended? Is this sleazy? Yeah. Not surprisingly, the conclusion turns out to be, and we quote, a low-carbohydrate diet based on animal sources was associated with higher all-cause mortality in both men and women, whereas a vegetable-based low-carbohydrate diet was associated with lower all-cause and cardiovascular disease mortality rates. Mm. And the breakout box in the final publication that's only available to subscribers says a vegetable-based low-carbohydrate diet is probably, probably healthier than an animal-based low-carbohydrate diet. Come on. So I know. So where were the experiments and what were the low-carbohydrate diets? Were they like an Atkins diet? Or mm. Was the reference like dummies? Mm. Or were these references like the famous Frank Sachs diet where all the recommended comparison diets turned out to be the same? Huh. So Professor Feynman goes on to, to quote from the study, and in the design of the study, a prospective cohort study of women and men followed from 1980 in the case of women or 1986 in the case of men until 2006 Low-carbohydrate diets were computed from multiple validated food frequency questionnaire assessed during follow-up. Uh, so it's not really a study. It's not really a study. You asked them what they ate, well, and they told you what they wanted to tell you. I'm going to say it. It's the same bullshit data that underpins all the epidemiological data. Right. It's probably the Women's Health Study and or mm -hmm. the, the uh, Health Professionals Follow-up Study. So Professor Feynman goes on to say, were computed. In other words, there were no diets. This was a diet score made up by the authors to characterize the same database that's given to so many epidemiological publications. Yeah. Is this dishonest, well-meaning, but lacking in precise writing? If the title says diet and there are no diets, isn't that simply unacceptable, poor science, whatever the motivation of the authors? Mm. The Office of Research Integrity at the National Institutes of Health is set up to deal with breaches of integrity, although usually you have to falsify your data to get their attention. Huh. So should I go to them? Should I bother? Should I confront the authors? After all, one of the authors is Frank Hugh. This is uh, a very well-known uh, researcher from the Harvard School of Public Health. Hmm. Um, Frank Hugh, who organised a posse of 100 or so vigilantes to try and get Nina Teicholds paper retracted oh. in 
in Britain. And should I go back to the journal editors? That is the key thing. This paper could not have received real peer review. Yeah. Or should I just forget it and go back to something that's real? What should I do? What should you do? Hmm. And, you know, that's an interesting question. What do we do? What do we do about it? I think the answer really is to metaphorically pants Frank Hugh in social media in such a way that this whole thing goes viral and it's repeated all over the place. In other words, Professor Feynman needs to raise his own army of vigilantes yeah. because this this just makes me angry. Hmm. You know what I think, Richard, is the people who propagate this BS that uh, yeah. say there isn't any sound science behind it or it may have or there are claims or this kind of stuff, the, I think either they're a, completely addicted to sugar and therefore can't imagine any human not eating glucose. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Or B, they're convinced that eating saturated fat will kill you, which we know is completely wrong. Or C, they're in the pockets of, you know, people who make money from, you know, from uh, off the whole juggernaut of, uh, you know, cause and effect which is steamrolled by companies that promote sugary products and medications. Yeah, I think there may be a fourth option, and that is people like Frank Hugh who have their career bound up right. in this whole um, model. But that gets back to the money thing. Right. Yeah, it definitely does get to follow the money, as Tom Norton always says. Yeah, yeah. But if they pull a thread to this, their entire edifice collapses and you have someone here with, who's got a 50-year career delving into the same database of data, mm. trying to pull result after result that conforms to their worldview. Right. Their worldview isn't actually based in fact. Their worldview is based on their understanding of their data. Mm. And because the data is so bad, it can be used to say anything. And that's the problem. Yeah. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see what happens uh, over the next couple of years because we're getting more and more studies that are showing that this data has been hidden. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, the Minnesota coronary experiment, yep. the data was hidden when it, when the intervention showed uh, you lower people's cholesterol and you increase their uh, rate of dying. Mm. Um, that information was hidden because it was, quote, unquote, inconvenient. We were disappointed with the results. Right. You know? Yeah. Um, this kind of thing is – it can't be hidden forever – and there will be a reckoning for the, yeah. for this kind of uh, sure thing. will. So that's my mail. What have you got, Carl? Well, I have uh, something that will no doubt prompt another discussion. Uh, this was posted in Show Me the Science, which is one of our forums on ketogenicforums.com. and it was uh, posted by Barbara, who was quoting a tweet, and this tweet was from Sean Baker. The amount of glucose that one's body needs is equal to the amount which it makes in the absence of carbohydrate. Bang, you know, exclamation point. Mm -hmm. Anyone know of anything to back this up? How much glucose do we make through gluconeogenesis? What controls it? And before we get into the discussion, let me just give you some background if you don't know. Gluconeogenesis is this wonderful gift that our liver gives us when we cut carbohydrates yeah. that provides, a, it's a demand-driven system that provides glucose to the brain to red blood cells to organs to to the tissues that need it. Yeah. And this is why we don't die when we cut carbohydrates. As some people say, oh, the brain needs 130 grams of glucose a day. Yeah, yeah, it does. But if you replace 80% of that with energy from ketones, 
Now it only needs 20% glucose. And guess what? Nice. Here's the liver. We have this backup yeah. system and it kicks in. Exactly. And if you don't know about that, you'll be more scared of a low carbohydrate diet. Okay. Yeah. Now, Amber, L. Amber O'Hearn, mm -hmm. who was on our carnivore show. And is speaking at Keto Fest. And is speaking at Keto Fest. Yes. Amber says, yeah. and by the way, she does a lot of research and a lot of science. Very mm -hmm. smart lady. She says, there's a possible conflation here. The body can make much more than we need. See, for example, this slide from Eric Westman. And she brings up a picture of a slide taken at Low Carb Vale. Uh, and this was 2016, February 2016. Daily carbohydrate requirements. The lower limit of dietary carbohydrate compatible with life apparently is zero, <laughs> provided that adequate amounts of protein and fat are consumed. Right. Bullet two, the minimal amount of exogenous and endogenous carb is dependent upon the brain, 100 to 140 grams of glucose per day. Right. After keto adaptation, 80% of the central nervous system energy can be derived from ketones, leaving 20 to 28 grams of glucose per day. Finally, endogenous glucose production rate, 2 to 2.5 milligrams per kilogram minimum, to 2.8 to 3.6 grams per kilogram per day. In a 70 kilogram man, this represents 210 to 270 grams per day. Wow. That's a lot. That's a lot of glucose. That is a lot of glucose, but we only make it when we need it. Right. And so Amber goes on to say, but then there's the question of what is actually produced by a keto dieter, which is a different question. Right. In this case, I would agree with Sean just based on logic, but I would phrase it in the other direction. Quote, the amount of glucose that one's body makes in the absence of carbohydrate is equal to the amount which it needs. And I say that <laughs> because it's a demand-driven process. It makes exactly what it needs almost by definition. Yeah, that's right. I mean, otherwise your body would continue to consume protein, right. uh, making glucose out of control. So this is the control system is when your insulin goes low, because you don't have a lot of glucose in your blood, your glucagon, which is the counter-regulatory hormone to insulin, goes high. So mm. insulin goes low, glucagon goes high. Yeah. And that tells the liver, we want to release some more glucose that you've got stored into the blood. Whenever the liver has capacity to store more glucose um, and there isn't any in circulation, it makes some. So it's all the demand-generated system. Mm. Uh, but we can actually impact that demand. For example, today I fasted for three days. In fact, today was the completion of a three-day fast. Yeah. And so for that entire time, I've been making glucose to keep my, my central nervous system and my red blood cells that are dependent on glucose alive. Yep. And then at the end of that three-day fast – I did a 55k bike ride. <laughs> yeah. And uh and you know I maintain my brain for that entire time. Now of course when I'm riding my bike uh, I'm going at a fairly quick pace and so mm. I'm using more oxygen mm -hmm. and my red blood cells are working harder and therefore they're going to need more glucose to be able to keep going and so my requirement for glucose increases mm. the glucose I have circulating in my body goes down. And that starts this regul regulatory process right. of 
compensating by the liver releasing more glucose and then making more to fill its stored amount. Yeah. Uh, so that's an entirely normal process. And Amber's right. We make it. We make what we need, mm. <laughs> and apparently we can make more than we need, right. which is a, a great way to be. It is. Um, so the thing that I think a lot of people get confused on, and and I did as well is you hear that it's a demand-driven system, so you only get as much as you need. But then we also say, if you overeat protein, you will you know, raise your insulin level because that extra protein ah. goes into the food system and gets processed uh, you know, as an input fuel. Well, it, it is a substrate. That is, it is a fuel for the process of making glucose. Mm. But the driver that determines whether you need glucose to be made is ultimately glucose going low in your blood in your bloodstream and therefore insulin going low yeah that's right so that drives the process it makes glucagon go high and it causes the liver to release glucose and uh, it's going to make glucose to to fill that uh, uh, storage of uh, glycogen so basically what happens is that if just as when you eat carbohydrates because that substrate raises insulin you know so much that never signals the the process to start of gluconeogenesis but protein as a food you know as a fuel yeah. when it gets when it gets metabolized also raises insulin so that it does so that may at the same time affect gluconeogenesis right it's not because protein as a fuel source for the process of making glucose goes up right. causing you to make more glucose. That's not how it works. Right, because we have plenty of protein we can scavenge for autophagy. And if that were the oh, case, yeah, we'd just exactly. be constantly out of control with glucose. 1% of our uh, of our body's amino acids are labile, which means they can be accessed at any, one po- at any point in time. They're floating in your bloodstream. Right. And, and, you know, um, but that's uh, it's not the availability of more fuel for the process of gluconeogenesis that, that causes more of it to happen. Okay. But I know of at least two ways that protein can cause increased demand for glucose. So in, rather than increasing the supply, which is what most people think we're doing, right. you're increasing the demand. Yeah. One of the ways is protein directly stimulates the, uh, the secretion of insulin from b- pancreatic beta cells. Okay. Uh, in a normal person, protein will also uh, cause the secretion of glucagon as well. So it's really a net effect of zero. But okay. with somebody who is a prodigious maker of insulin yeah. and type 2 diabetics are notorious yep. for it, uh, they could make insulin for six hours and quite a lot of it. And you, mm. I did a test once and I put the results on the ketogenic forums uh, where I tested after doing a fast for three to five days and then I did a 90K worth of exercise on my bike. So so what I was doing was I was dis- depleting all of my stores of glycogen in my muscles mm-hmm. and in my liver and then eating some protein. So mm. I ate two different challenges. One was 25 grams of egg white. Uh, with a little bit of butter and a little bit of salt. Mm -hmm. And then I ate 25 grams of the following test. I ate 25 grams of whey with a little bit of butter and a little bit of salt. Whey protein, yeah. Yeah, it was whey protein isolate. Yeah, it was Mm. just powder. Powder you mix up. Yeah. And it's just stuff that, you know, a lot of uh, weightlifters will use to increase their protein. Mm. And the interesting thing was because I depleted my, my glucose stores, I was able to see my my glucose drop as insulin was secreted. So I was able to see my glucose go down from where it was being maintained during my bike ride Mm. around about 4.8 to 5.2 range, which Mm. is about my physiological range. When it starts to go below 4.8, I could actually see uh, 
my body trying to my liver trying to 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 combat this by making more glucose. Okay. And the I could actually see after eating the egg whites that my my glucose dropped because insulin was being secreted due to the protein. That's right, due to the signal of protein. And it lasted for about three hours. Mm. Now when I did the same test with whey protein isolate, it lasted for six hours and the drop was like almost three times larger. Wow. So well, we know that whey is more insulinogenic. There are studies right. that show this. But we were able to see how long a type 2 diabetic like me will make insulin in response to uh, a signal. And, mm. and you know, in this case, it was, it was about six hours. Mm. So, um, so what that means is that it, somebody who eats protein who is a prodigious maker of insulin will actually produce insulin at a large amount for quite a long time, and during that time their glucose will be depressed and then that will be driving the demand for glucose. So that's one way of doing it. And the other way is that some uh, amino acids uh, replete oxaloacetate, which is one of these metabolites in the Krebs cycle that depletion of that particular metabolite causes ketones to be spilled. So by this amino acid stimulating production of oxaloacetate, uh, that, and this is called an anaplerotic reaction, Mm. Um, it means that you're making less ketones. Mm. And if you have a, as you mentioned before, if you have a ketogenically uh, adapted brain, Mm. your brain is quite happy living on 75% of its energy coming from ketones. And 25% 25% of its energy coming from glucose. Right. But if you lower the amount of ketones that you're making, that three to one ratio is a, is a leverage point. And so for every- Yeah, you're increasing the demand for glucose. It, it, absolutely, by a factor of three. So this explains why you want to eat more fat if you're a type two diabetic and you want to be in ketosis, meaning you want to produce a lot more ketones because that lowers the demand for glucose via gluconeogenesis. And if you're one of these low carbers that thinks you got to eat more protein and less fat and maybe even restrict calories, you're going to increase the demand for glucose more than you would if you ate uh, significantly more fat in your diet, produce more ketones. Exactly. Yeah, even though you're low on carbohydrate, the extra protein is uh, is fueling the demand. And this also explains why you have success uh, lowering protein and, you know, moderate protein, high fat with guys like us and, you know, lots and lots of diabetic and overweight people all around the world. And then you yeah. also have this class of people on a ketogenic diet, which is higher protein, but these are typically thinner, fit people with good insulin sensitivity. That's the critical thing. They're insulin sensitive, yeah. And so when you're insulin sensitive, it's a different story, isn't it? That's right. When you're insulin sensitive, then as you calorically restrict, there's no insulin blockage of uh, of uh, adipose releasing energy, um, so you can uh, get all of the energy that you need from your body fat. Mm. If, however, your own basal production of insulin, your fasted insulin, is over about thirteen um, milliunits per liter, then basically that blockades fat in your fat cells, 
that's if your fat cells are healthy, mm-hmm. uh, it blockades them and uh, so you have less capacity. Yeah. So one way of looking at this idea of energy being blockaded in body fat is mm. imagine, let's do, try a thought experiment. Imagine a person who has zero body fat. Okay. Now, they eat a ketogenic diet, mm-hmm. for example. They're going to eat you know, 20 grams of carbs a day. They're going to eat uh, enough protein for their lean body mass and enough fat to satiation. Mm-hmm. Their fat to satiation will be all of the energy that they need for the day. Mm. Okay. So what happens if that person reduces their fat on their plate? So they reduce the fat on their plate. They have zero body fat. Right. They can't get any energy from body fat. Right. So what happens? Their body goes to any other substrate available, which is protein. Of course. And so it the body will start looking for protein that's not necessary for immediate survival. So obviously nobody has zero body fat. Right. Let's say somebody has you know, Seven, 10% percent, body yeah. fat. Right. Now, when they reduce fat on the plate, what is going to happen is their fat on their body will supplement their energy requirements because it's stored for that purpose mm-hmm. until they run out of fat and then their body will start going back to protein. So let's say somebody has... 100 pounds of body fat, Mm. Um, they're going to be able to go for longer. But here's the problem. If their insulin is high enough, their fasted insulin, that is the insulin they produce even when there is no secretory stimulant from uh, incoming food, uh, if that is above about 13 milli IU per per litre or that's roughly 100 uh, picomoles per litre, then their energy will be blockaded in the body fat. So it's like they have zero body fat available to provide energy. Okay. And this is one of the reasons why people stall because when they first start dieting, if they're really uh, metabolically deranged, their adipocytes are not insulin sensitive at all. Right. They're not able to blockade body fat. But as they're so, – so they're releasing free fatty acids into their circulation. Mm-hmm. They're actually overwhelmed with energy and unable to use it mm-hmm. because – their high insulin will prevent them from being able to get fat into the mitochondria to be burned um, in their muscle cells. So, yeah. so their body is ab- absolutely full of fat. Their circulation is full of free fatty acids and, and their cells really can't use it at a high speed. Yeah. Um, so what happens when you go on a low-carb diet? The first thing that happens is that break on your mitochondria is released. And so now you can burn free fatty acids and you start to draw down the free fatty acids in your blood. And your fat cells start saying, all right, so we can release some of this cargo that we've got, we can become less deranged, and now we can start to respond to the signal of insulin. Mm. We can become more insulin sensitive. Mm. And that's the point where most people stall because now their insulin is still high enough to blockade that body fat but it's low enough to enable burning of fat. And so that's really why, as Dr. Finney says, people naturally, um, spontaneously add more fat to their plate Mm. once their body fat is um, stopping its contribution of energy to their equation. And so so now your job when you're still like that is to do whatever you can to lower your insulin below 13 and then you will uh, release more uh, body fat. And you'll be less hungry. So this is the thing. When the body fat is releasing energy into your 
circulation, you're just not hungry because mm. uh, that's one of the th- the triggers that drives the signal for hunger and satiation. Yeah. So, and it's all part of the massive big metabolic calculation that your body does yeah. every moment of the day to keep you alive. Sure. Well, speaking of metabolic calculation and how complex it is and <laughs> how we really, really need some simple explanations of these things, let's bring on our guest, Tom Naughton. Hi, Tom. Howdy, guys. How are you? Great. Good to see you again. I think it was, what, I think episode number 20 or something we, we last spoke to you on. I did not memorize the episode number, but I remember we had a nice conversation. Yeah, and I think you did pretty well at the uh, McDonald's quiz, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, didn't I get about 50%? Is, is, is that actually good? That's a passing grade. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was a little bit over that. I thought you tipped the scale, but okay. All it's, right. It's always fun to talk to you. And you have a book out that uh, is for children, is it not? It is for children and for, of course, the parents of children. And I'm happy to say that uh, some of the reviewers, including Mark Sisson and Paul Jaminet, both said, if you are a child or an adult, you should read this book. So, But we certainly did write it at the kid level. And as uh, Dr. Westman told me when I was still working on it, you know, if you can explain this to kids, I know some doctors who will get it. <laughs> you are so right. Uh, I thought it was... For me, uh, and I, I have adults that I want to give this to. I mean, there's nothing like a few cartoons and a little imagination about space travel to, to make everything work. Your analogies are brilliant, and I would recommend it to anybody. Thank you. Yeah, totally. The the whole uh, anthropomorphizing of uh, your metabolic uh, processes with Marty metabolism is awesome. <laughs> and you know, it only took me, uh, I don't know, ten or twelve drafts to finally come up with that idea. And I, I had actually written quite a bit of it just kind of explaining things like I would explain them, you know, to a kid. Well, this happens, that happens. And I kept looking at it and thinking there's something about this not quite right. Can't put my finger on it. And then uh, my wife and I were banging ideas around and one idea led to another. And when we came up with the idea of, hey, wait a minute, what if what if the kid's body is a starship with a crew? Yeah. And then it was that, you know, you when you're writing something, sometimes you have that huge aha moment. This is the idea I've been looking for. And once right. we came up with that analogy, bang, everything just fell together. And uh, the creative process just really gained steam then. But you have all these sub analogies that are brilliant. Uh, I, I'm going to start using them. Um, first of all, you have some great analogies to explain why calories in, calories out isn't a cause, but it's an effect. I've had a hard time getting that concept across to people, but a very simple one you have, okay, your toilet overflows, there's water all over the floor, and the plumber explains it's because more water went in than went out. Thanks, Mr. Genius. <laughs> nice butt crack. I would love to take credit for that, but I think Gary Taubes may have used that in a speech. Okay. Uh, in, in any, let, let me put it this way. I'm reasonably sure I heard someone else use that analogy somewhere before I, I put it in the book. So, uh, I, I can't take, take credit for originating that one. But it's brilliant because it's a commentary that says, apparently we think our metabolisms are less complex than a toilet. I know. Isn't that amazing? Or, you know, people are always comparing it to a bank. Well, it's like a bank account. It's calories in and that's eating and it's calories out. That's expending energy. I'm thinking, seriously, what in the human body is actually that simple? People understand that 
the brain, the nervous system, blah, blah. They understand all this stuff is hugely complex. And then for some reason, they think your metabolism works like a piggy bank, like a kid's piggy bank. I'm thinking, do you, how can you possibly believe that? It's such a simple explanation. That's the problem. It's too simple. Yeah. Yeah. Who was it uh, said, you know, for every problem, there's a, a explanation or a solution that's clear and simple and wrong? Yeah. Occam's razor. The, the, yeah. the right solution tends to be the simplest solution or the simplest solution tends to be the right solution. When you get down to human metabolism, like, I'm sorry, nothing works like a piggy bank. Yeah. I love the fact that you start off talking about uh, your own experience when you were a kid. I think you were 14 and you just started putting on weight and you were ungainly and unable to, to I think, uh, shoot the basketball uh, ring and, and were, you know, made fun of by basically the teachers in front of your class. I I went through that experience myself. I think a lot of kids do. Me too. And, and we don't realise how many... Um, kids are, are brutalized by this concept of, you know, it, hey, fatty, just eat less and, and move a little bit more. Right. While they chow down on their pizza and then they grow up to be doctors right. and just, you know, that becomes their mantra as well. My wife intentionally made those characters look a little bit on the stupid side. The ones that are saying, <laughs> hey, just eat less, get off your butt and move. Um, you know, she's drawing them. She shows it to me and she says, these guys look like idiots. And I said, well, Good. Job done. Yeah. What I'm what I'm hoping is that the people who say that, you know, uh maybe after they read the book, if they read the book, they do feel like idiots. But I wanted to start the book with my own story because I I think it's important for kids to read this to understand that I've been in their shoes. Yeah, we have a friend who we've interviewed on the show uh from Australia, Shane Barnbrook, who long story short had an, an accident by consuming a chicken bone, became paralyzed, became quadriplegic, and in a wheelchair lost 100 pounds just by replacing all the carbs in his diet with fat. Wow. Um, it's horrible that that happened to him. But yeah, clearly it, he, didn't, uh, he didn't get up and exercise more. So. Right. Yeah, he didn't do a couple of sneaky 5K runs. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think, think we can safely assume that's true. <laughs> yeah. I you know I feel like this book was written for me. Maybe it's because you're a programmer. I mean, you put some C# sharp code in there with a mouse click. I know Richard's going crazy I here too. I spent way too much time reading trying to work out what that C# sharp was doing. <laughs> <laughs> that was another analogy. It, it you know, I was into it for a few drafts when I was trying to explain stuff and it finally hit me, you know, your body kind of has its own code and it follows instructions and it doesn't matter what you want the instructions to do. They do what they're coded to do. And it was another one of those things after I'd gone through a few drafts and then that hit me and I was thinking, for God's sake, I'm a programmer. How did it take me several drafts right. to, to decide to use programming as a as an analogy? But I, you know, so far we've been alerted to one typo. I can't believe I did this. For C++, I just put C++. And a, a programmer already let me know. And I was like, curses. Well, okay. I, I guess as far as typos go, that's pretty minor. Well, both C++ programmers who read this book will be very upset. <laughs> yeah, possibly all three of them. So. <laughs> you know, I also love the name you gave to the spaceship. And the whole idea here is that 
this captain, you're, you're the captain of a spaceship and, uh, you know, it goes exploring and it has a fuel system and all of this stuff. And it makes it so much more interesting to think of your body like a spaceship. But I love the name you gave to it, which is near and dear to my heart, Nautilus, yes. which was the first nuclear submarine, which if I open my window and look out it, I can see the Nautilus at the, the sub base across the river from where I live. Well, and I believe that name was taken from uh, Jules Verne. That's right. Captain Nemo, yep. 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. And and also the name that you gave uh, to the fuel, both for, f- for building and material, F-U-D, which could be food or it could be fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Which is it, Tom? <laughs> well, we pronounce it FUD in the film version. And part of the reason we chose that is, you know, we spend so much time talking about all the processed garbage out there. And it's nice to have a word, uh, a term for it that's not food. This stuff isn't food. It's FUD. Right. Because it includes both, you know, as by analogy, protein and, you know, fuel. Well, and also just you know, by calling it FUD when we're showing all the processed garbage. Uh, do you really want to call that stuff food? Do you want to call Pop-Tarts food? I'd rather call it FUD. <laughs> so when is the movie going to be out? Is it a work in progress? It is a work in progress. I had promised uh, Jimmy Moore that we would be premiering it on the Low Carb Cruise in slightly less than three weeks. So I'm going a little out of my mind trying to get it done. And I I, I know that the version we show on the cruise will be a, a work in progress version of uh, in other words, I don't think I'll have time to have every sound perfectly sweetened and mixed. There may be an animation or graphic here or there that we'll tweak afterwards. So certainly we'll have something ready for the cruise uh, at the end of May. And then when we get back from the cruise, I'll go through the whole process of adding my own music, mixing the sound, et cetera, et cetera. If all goes well, I'm hoping maybe August. Is the movie a cartoon? Well, this this is why I'm going crazy. Um <laughs> I decided we would take the characters that my wife drew for the book and we would animate them and they will move and talk and stuff will happen and the Nautilus will fly through space and my dorky kid character will actually run that race that he loses to a guy who is skipping. <laughs> and keep in mind, I've never animated anything like this before. So, Oh, you're doing it yourself. A, I am doing it myself. I decided um, this is a skill I want to pick up. Wow. Also... You know, we we funded Fathead ourselves and we paid an animator and he was a great he was very good and he worked at a very reasonable rate because he was fresh out of film school. He wanted to get one under his belt. Hmm. But nonetheless, you know, we've gone through the experience of investing a lot in a film and then hoping and praying you get your money back and then some. Hmm. So as much as we can, you know, we're going to crank this one out uh, basically with a two person production crew. And I'm married to the other person on the crew (laughs) so that we're not uh, in that position of, you know, sitting on pins and needles thinking, boy, I hope this thing makes our investment back. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Well, good luck with that. Hey, getting back to some of these analogies, which are just amazingly cool and too cool not to share right now. There's one chapter called how bad FUD damages the fuel system. And, you know, it's easy to understand how the wrong gas can damage your car, right? You put high octane or leaded gas in an unleaded car. You put diesel in a car. That we can understand because, hey, cars are pretty complex. But apparently our bodies are less complex than a car. Uh, Some people (laughs) seem to think so. That's just a wonderful analogy. 
Um, some of the other things maybe you can talk about um, hunger being a message from the crew. What's that all about? Well, people tend to think that, as I explained in there, we you know when I was a kid, I thought, well, your fuel system is kind of like a car's. Um, so you eat food, you're filling the tank. And then when the tank gets empty, you get hungry again because that's your body saying, I need more fuel now. Uh, and of course, that's part of it. But your body needs things and your body knows it needs things. And unlike a car, there's not a separate hatch for gas here, or oil there, or wiper fluid here. Mm. Everything has to go through what we call the FUD hatch. <laughs> so if you're just slamming any old thing down the FUD hatch, you might be filling that, you know, putting food in the tank, but you might not be giving your body what it needs. And your body is smart enough if it doesn't get what it needs, if it doesn't get the protein it needs, if it doesn't get the nutrients it needs, if it doesn't get the quality fats that it needs then our character, Marty Metabolism, is going to crank up the Get Hungry program to force you to keep eating in hopes that you stumble across some actual nutrients, which is why, as you guys know, you know, up the protein in your diet, put the good fat in your diet. What happens? Suddenly you find that you are less hungry and you end up eating less, not because you're starving yourself, not because you're applying this iron will. It's because, hey, guess what? I'm not hungry. Uh, I like the fact that you talk about character, uh, about the fact that kids that, who are putting on weight and, and getting fat, it's not an issue of their lack of character. It's how their programming works. I think uh, that's a hugely important point that I really, really wanted to make for two reasons. One, I want the kids who are struggling with their weight to understand it's not because you're a bad person or a weak person. Right. I also hope that kids maybe who read this who are not the fat kid in class will look at the fat kid in class differently. I certainly looked at obese people differently after oh, yeah. I did the research for fathead. Everybody's, oh, people are stuffing themselves, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. I look at a big, heavy person now, and I think there's someone who's starving inside. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. And so I, I really want kids to get it. Like, this is not about your character. It's not that you're bad. It's not that you're weak. If you're getting fat, it's because your body is following a set of instructions written into your chemical code that are saying, get fat. And the only thing you can do is learn how to change those instructions. Yeah, that's right. Change the FUD that's going in the FUD hatch. <laughs> the FUD. Shut your FUD hatch. The FUD hatch. Shut your... Fud hatch. Hey, wouldn't that be cool if that became a thing? Shut your fud hatch. I'm going to make a t-shirt right now. We'll make it a thing. But you guys have both lost massive amounts of weight, and you both yeah. know that did you suddenly develop considerably better character? Of course not. You changed your diet, which changed the instructions that your body was running, and suddenly losing weight became far easier than it had ever been. It wasn't about characters. We say in the book, it was about chemistry. Right. It certainly wasn't because we ate less, ate less calories or anything else. We, the only thing we ate less of is carbohydrates. And uh, do you actually talk about carbohydrates in the book? Because when you start getting there, it, um, you know, well, I guess you do in hunger is a message from the crew and all of this stuff. But how do you bring up the subject of carbohydrate with children or with in a simple way? It's in that chapter somewhat. It's in the chapter how the fuel system works, where we explain how your body toggles between burning fat and burning glucose, um, depending on how much glucose is in the system. And we talk about carbohydrates a lot in how bad FUD damages the system, damages the fuel system. You know, for the, these are kids. These are not um, 
those of us who spent years gaining weight for all the wrong reasons and have damaged metabolisms and have to do something drastic, these are kids. So we're basically telling them, get rid of the processed carbohydrates. Like we, we never in the book say, go ketogenic. We never in the book even say, go on a low carb diet. Because I'm yeah. a father, I have two girls, and I know that when you cut out the sugars and the grains, guess what? Their carbohydrate consumption plummets because to really stuff yourself with carbs, you almost have to use processed food. In other words, if you take a thousand calories worth of Pop-Tarts and cereal and apple juice and et cetera out of a kid's diet, I can promise you they're not going to replace it with a thousand calories worth of sweet potatoes. They just won't do it. Or, f- so or for butter, most kids or, or bacon, well, I'm perfectly happy if they replace it with butter or bacon. Right. But the point is with kids, if you get the processed garbage out of their diet, yeah. they end up on a much lower carb diet, even though you don't tell them, Hey, you're on a lower carb diet now. It's just, we're getting rid of the, we're getting rid of the cereals. We're getting rid of the pop tarts. No more big jugs of apple juice. Here's the foods you're allowed to eat. I've seen the same thing with kids uh, that I come into contact with even just a reduction, you know, in carbohydrates and especially breads and pastas and crackers and cookies and sugary stuff, even just a reduction in that can show a dramatic increase because, you know, they're, they're still insulin sensitive. It's just that their insulin is too high and needs to come down a little bit in order for them to access that body fat. Well, and I actually heard Doc Nally, um, telling Jimmy Moore on, on one of their podcasts that, Kids, the way their metabolisms are, if you just cut the the garbage carbs out of their diet, they actually tend to drift into ketosis even without you yeah. specifically trying to put them on a ketogenic diet. Yeah, kids switch from fuel v- very easily. You, know, you you can have a kid, you can send them to school and the school feeds them Pop-Tarts or whatever, Captain Crunch or whatever rubbish schools feed kids. Um, if you feed the kid a, a, a low-carb meal for dinner when they wake up in the morning they'll be in ketosis because they switch very easily in and out it's as we get older and more cranky and (laughs) our machinery is not working as well that we uh that we find that we have a really hard time switching from glucose to fat burning that's why you wrote the book because you want kids to be prepared for what's going to inevitably come later if they don't make changes now yeah and i i think um as well, as we say in the beginning of the book, if I'd known this stuff when I was a kid, my whole life would have been different. Yeah. You know, I'm telling kids what I wish I had known when I was their age. I mean, as the subtitle of the book, stuff mm. about diet and health, I wish I knew when I was your age. Mm. And I, it's so much easier to prevent the damage in the first place yep. than to try to fix it later. So how do you deal with the issue of uh, fat phobia? I mean, there are all these messages in the media that, you know, you got to you got to avoid fat. You you don't remove fat from your diet. How do you respond to that? We have a section in the book where, um, first off, in this in the section called "Hunger is a Message from the Crew," we explain that fats really are necessary, good fats that your body craves them for for good reason because you need them. And then there's a because we know kids are going to be taught about my plate and all that other nonsense at school. We have a section where. Uh, For those who haven't seen the book yet, we kind of explain how we shifted to these different diets by using the analogy of the Nautilus migrated to different planets. It went from the planet of real food to the planet of FUD farms to the planet of industrial FUD and finally to the planet of the preposterous pyramid. And we explain why living on the 
uh, Planet of the Preposterous Pyramid sends the Nautilus all the wrong messages. It sends the messages that say, get fat, etc., etc. So then we end that chapter with, so if this is such a lousy place, how did we end up here? And then we give a very brief version, kind of like in Fathead, only using the, the space analogy of how did we end up living on the planet of the preposterous pyramid? <laughs> and at that point, we give a simple as I could make it explanation of the bad science that was involved in scaring people away from fats. Right. We've got a system error here that made us migrate to the wrong planet. And we exactly. got to get off this planet because, you know, it, somebody badly programmed the Nautilus to go to the wrong place. Well, and you know what's great about now versus when I made Fathead back in 2009? In, in the book, because, you know, so many more scientists have come around. So yeah. in the book, we're able to put in headlines. You know, we say in the book that fortunately there's been a revolution in the universe. People, more and more doctors and researchers are realizing migrating the planet of the preposterous pyramid was a mistake. Mm. And we actually were able to do screen caps on a bunch of headlines in the book you know, saturated fat, not linked to heart disease, Right. you know, uh, stop the war on fat. It was a mistake. The time magazine cover eat butter. Scientists got it wrong. Right. So I think it's easier to convince people now than it was back in 2009 that the whole anti, you know, saturated fat hysteria was wrong and it was a mistake. Another thing that you did at towards the end was talk about mood and how you'll, you know, if you're, if you're cranky all the time, it might just be because the FUD you're putting in your body is wrong and you'll, you'll feel better. And also sleep. You, and I'm glad you brought those things up because, you know, kids are notoriously uh, moody and not getting enough sleep. I'll tell you what inspired that chapter made me realize, boy, that's one you really have to put in. Uh, and I got a similar email today. I got an email from uh, a mom who told me that she and her husband had watched Fathead and switched up their diet because they wanted to lose weight. She said, and we did, but that's not why I'm, I'm writing you. And she went on to tell me that her son, who had been doing poorly in school, who flew into these incredible rages, um, after they switched the diet to lose weight, he became calm. He became focused. He became a straight-A student mm. who was in a good mood most of the time, and she... She said, you're my angel. I think you saved his life. And it was, you know, I get these occasionally where I, I kind of get choked up because I was like, I just thought I was making a funny little film. Yeah. Uh, but I actually got another one of those emails today, once again, from um, a mom who had recently bought the book. And she said, I, now that we've uh, switched up our diet, she said, my kids are just in a better mood all the time. So I think it is hugely important for kids because, you know, there are a lot of kids out there who aren't getting fat. Right. And they probably think, well, I don't need to do this. I'm not gaining weight anyway. Uh, but, you know, do you have emotional problems? Do you have a hard time concentrating in school? So I think it's an important message. Like, by the way, your overall mood is just going to be better if you switch to a real food diet. Yeah, I see the same thing in my kids. And uh, if you listen to the keto families show that we did with Karen Mangiacotti and Mark Miller, they had the same experience with every single one of their kids that changed their, their diet. And, you know, most of them are not, you know, in fact, none of them are, are obese. Yeah. One of their kids has uh, autism spectrum three, I think Asperger's, and he uh, saw a major decrease in the brain fog that 
that he had trouble trying to explain things to people. And all of a sudden, you know, when he when he switched up his diet, he, he found that fo- fog cleared. And his father, also who has autism, found that he it, it, that the same thing happened for him as an adult. So uh, there's certainly a lot of uh, anecdotal evidence about. Uh, uh, a low carb or a high fat approach, um, uh, helping, um, kids and adults with, uh, uh, mental issues. So no, that's, that's awesome that you managed to get that in. I have a, I have an anecdote for you myself, sure. not about autism or anything, but when we were moving from California to Tennessee, we had these very long drives in the car and our girls who were little at the time, they were so well behaved. And of course, you know, again, we eat lower carb, high fat, et cetera. They were so well behaved. And one day we stopped someplace and they were selling ice cream, I think. And can we please have ice cream, Dad? Can we please? And so my wife and I said, well, gosh, they've been so good on this trip. <laughs> sure, we'll give them a treat. So, you know, we we let them have like this nice sugary ice cream to reward them for their good behavior. I think about an hour later, they were screaming at each other in the backseat at the top of their lungs. It was like, wow, we could have not gotten a more clear example of how the food affects their emotions. And an hour later, they crashed, right? <laughs> and then they crashed, yes. Then we had blessed silence. Yeah, anybody who has kids knows all about the effects of sugar on kids. And it's funny because I've seen studies which were probably funded by big food on how, no, 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 sugar doesn't affect kids' behavior. And I'm thinking, you know, you can produce these studies and try to shift the conversation that way. All you got to do is ask other parents. <laughs> we all know. Or if you have a niece or nephew. Invite him over, mm-hmm. give him some cake, and see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> well, Tom, uh, we can go to Amazon and get your book. This is amazing. And uh, I personally hope that uh, we can get a few copies to give away and maybe a few others to sell yeah. at Keto Fest. Uh, that's, that is a terrific idea. You and I will talk. I would love for you to have some uh, available at Keto Fest. And in case I forgot to say it before, congratulations, guys. You uh, you pulled it off. Yeah, I can't believe it. <laughs> we did. <laughs> That's awesome. I wish I could be there, sincerely. Um, unfortunately, I get back from the low-carb cruise like the weekend before, and I, I used up a bunch of vacation days. I will be with you there in spirit. Uh, so, sorry, I can't be there in person, but I, I think it's great you you got uh, you managed to pull that off. Yeah, I think we're going to get uh, the Fathead movie uh, on the screen at uh, on Social Saturday. So that's going to be one of the, mo- the keto movies that we're going to be showing to people. Um, and yeah. you know, so, so you're going to be there more than in spirit. Um, you're going to be there on the big screen. <laughs> we will yeah. definitely invoke the, uh, the, the spirit of Tom Naughton at Keto Fest. Maybe I could show up through some kind of hologram system. Hey, you know, can we can up. work on that actually. All right. We'll give everybody let's, a hollow lens and call it a day. <laughs> let's, uh, let's make it so. Well, Tom, thanks so much. This is a, a great book. I really enjoyed skimming through it at least, and I can't wait to sit down and read it more and share it with my family. And as always, great talking to you guys. Appreciate you having me on. Yeah, thanks, Tom. All right, we'll see you. What a great idea, making a book for kids. That's definitely needed. Yeah. Well, Richard, are you hungry? No, I'm not. You know, you know why? Why? Because I just made a recipe. Recipes. <laughs> recipes. So my recipe today is what I've actually just eaten. Okay. It's just, uh, I guess, two days after Cinco de Mayo here that we're recording this, mm. and so I decided to do some Mexican food. Yeah. 
So what I wanted to do was use Brenda Zorn's method for making waffles. Yeah. And I bought one of these gadgets that makes waffle bowls. Have you seen these? Oh, yeah, I've seen them. Yeah. So you made a pork rind pancake bowl. Yeah, that's right. A pork <laughs> rind pancake, pork rind and egg pancake bowl. Now, I didn't use cinnamon and stevia, which is what she uses in her sweet waffles. Mm-hmm. Instead, I used cumin and Mexican chili powder. Oh, yeah. So I, Mexican chili powder, cumin, and pork rinds, and egg. So that was the flavor of this bowl that I made. Wow. I know, right? <laughs> and then on top of that, I put some. I had some pulled pork and I added cumin. At, by the way, if you ever want to make taco seasoning, that's mm. the trick, cumin and chili powder. And a little garlic. You can add garlic powder and onion powder as yeah. well or, and salt, but I, yep. I, I don't. I don't normally worry about that. Uh, so I made this homemade taco seasoning that I added to some pulled pork. So okay. I had pulled taco seasoned pork. Awesome. And then I used your recipe for uh, from last week, which was the uh, chorizo with uh, Chinese five spice. Yeah. And so I, I, I bought a chorizo sausage and I degloved it. That is, I Took the skin ran a knife off. down the side and pulled the skin off the outside and I pulled all the meat apart put it in a pan, added the Chinese five spice, cooked it up with a little bit of coconut oil. Nice. And uh, so mm. so it was like crunchy little uh, yeah. uh, little chorizo bits. <laughs> so this went into the into the taco bowl yeah. and the pulled pork went into a taco bowl. And oh, so no. I made up some guac- guacamole and that oh, went geez. in. And then I, I had some shredded lettuce and that went in as well. Yeah. And then I made up some cheese sauce right. and I used the – uh, trisodium citrate, which is um, a technique we've spoken about before. Sure. But I made it quite soupy. Yeah, s- right. Consistency. Yeah. So I basically poured this soup into this <laughs> ta- taco bowl <laughs> and uh, it was delicious, but oh, oh it was too much food. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> next time next time I do this, I'm going to use probably half the waffle mixture, and so it only goes halfway up the side of this bowl. Yeah. Um, so I'll make a small. I'll make a smaller amount. Think a taco dish. Yeah, but it <laughs> was really delicious. Talk about boring keto. Huh? Yeah, I know. It's <laughs> what I usually do to to uh, to make sure that I don't overeat that stuff is just invite a bunch of people. <laughs> so you know, invite a bunch of people over, and then you know, you're usually a little. You know, you have less for you and more for yeah. them. Yeah. Well, one of the things about eating fat to satiation is when you overeat like that, you don't eat for for a longer period. So, yeah. you know, I don't have three meals a day. I usually have one and a half meals a day. Yeah. And I pr- I may not eat for a couple of days after that. <laughs> so that's the trick. You eat when you're hungry and you stop yeah. when you're full. That's awesome, Richard. So what do you got, Carl? Well, my recipe today isn't so much of a recipe. It's more of a tip. Okay. Now- Chefs know there's a secret to making fried food really, really crispy. Mm-hmm. There's a bunch of ways to do this. Yeah. But the carby ways are, you know, use cornstarch, right? Yeah. And uh, cornstarch is, it makes, makes uh, breading crispier than, um, you know, it's just standard flour mixtures. Yeah. However, we know that that's not an option for us. No. Now, there is another secret, oh. and that is vodka. <laughs> no way. I'm serious. What does it do? Dehydrate the food or something? Well, no, it evaporates really fast Ah. and that sort of makes things fry and bubble and crisp up quicker. Interesting. Okay. And uh, and makes things more crispy. So I did an experiment. Mm -hmm. I took some 
you know, bland, boneless chicken breasts and cut it up into nugget-sized pieces. Right. And I use my keto breadcrumbs, which mm-hmm. is- Pork rinds and parmesan. Three parts pork rinds, yeah, and uh, one part parmesan or Romano mm-hmm. cheese. And so I just did how I normally do this is I fry in olive oil. And I used to walk. And I have pictures. I'll put up a blog okay. post. Awesome. And uh, for for the control group, I just, you know, rolled <laughs> the chicken in the breadcrumbs, yeah. pressed as much as I could in there and fried it. Mm-hmm. For the other group, I soaked the chicken in vodka first. Nice. And then rolled it in the breadcrumb mixture and then fried it. And the results were marked. Mm-hmm. Like you could really tell the one with the vodka was crispier. There was no alcohol flavor. Right. Because that had all evaporated, evaporated off. Evaporated off, yeah. Vodka doesn't have a strong flavor anyway. No. It just tastes like jet fuel. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I like my vodka. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. I don't make no, jokes I'm not about hate, I'm not hating on you. <laughs> Get your vodka on. That's good, yeah, kids. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. so so that's it. Um, the, the whole idea is you just want to, you know, soak whatever you're cooking, whether it's cheese sticks or chicken or fish or whatever you deep fry, add a little vodka to it. You might want to try adding a little vodka to the to the waffle mix yeah. next time you make it uh, <laughs> to, to make it a little crispier. Oh, yeah, that sounds redonkulous. <laughs> it's redonkulous. So what's the mechanism of action, do you think? Um, I don't know, but the way I've heard it explained is that, uh, you know, if you're using water, of course, water and oil don't mix all that well. It's going to snap, snappity, snap, snap. Yeah. But alcohol, I guess, um, just when it evaporates, uh, something about how uh, the evaporation affects the crispiness of it. Yeah. I don't know exactly the mechanism, but I know that if you go looking for deep frying with vodka... You'll see that some of the best Chef chefs use are, yeah. are using this technique yeah, that's awesome. to make bread and crispier. Oh, I'm going to try that. I, probably not with lean chicken. I don't I don't like eating lean chicken. Yeah, the only reason I did it with lean chicken is because uh, Kelly, my wife, was hungry and right. she wanted, you know. Okay. that's That worked really well. But I think, you know, doing it with anything, really, you could take any meat. You could take, uh, you know, meatballs that you make with yeah. um, keto breadcrumbs nice. and do the same thing. You could do it with uh, sausage patties. I know with uh, steak, if you're going to deep fry steak, you want to dehydrate it in the fridge beforehand for a couple of days. So you basically, huh. you sort of fridge age it. You put it on a, on a rack in the fridge, huh. in the dry air, and it, it takes a lot of the moisture out of the surface of the steak and so that when you fry yeah. it, it uh, it crisps up nicely. So maybe it's a similar kind of reaction that the alcohol marinade is going to be displacing some of the water on the outside. And so, as you say, yeah, water maybe. and oil don't mix, so maybe less water on the outside means you've got more chance of keeping the moisture inside right. and crisping the outside. Well, we're hoping that an alert listener will let us in on the science behind this. And, you know, you know, granted, I should, probably should have done my research before talking <laughs> about it. But... Uh, but still, uh, it does work, and I did a test, and it was um, much crispier and tastier with a little vodka. That's awesome. <laughs> so that's it. Enjoy, kids. I know it's a long show today, but I'm glad we got through the stuff that we did, and I'd like to thank Tom Naughton for being here as well. Yeah, thanks, Tom. Of course, if you have anything that you want to tell us, something we said wrong or something you don't agree with, some more research that you found to support or refute anything that we've said, send it by email to dudes at twoketodudes.com. Or post it on our website. While you're at it, register for KetoFest at KetoFest.com. 
And you can follow us on Twitter at 2KetoDudes, on Instagram at 2KetoDudes, and make sure to use the hashtag 2KetoDudes. <laughs> That's a whole lot of 2KetoDudes right there. <laughs> and of course, if you want to join our forum, it's ketogenicforums.com or forum.2keto.com. And if useless swag is your fancy, you know, t-shirts, coffee mugs, and other junk with witty keto sayings on them, head over to gear.2keto.com. And now you can join the Two Keto Dudes fan club. You'll be eligible to win something in every show. Just click the fan club button on the top of the Two Keto Dudes page or go to fanclub.2keto.com. And if you feel like supporting our podcast and our forums, hit the donate button on our website at www.2ketodudes.com or just go to donate.2keto.com. You can also see our podcast and other videos on YouTube at youtube.2keto.com. And if you haven't already... Go leave us a great review on iTunes. Absolutely. We like that. Well, keep calm and keto on, Richard. Yeah, keep calm and keto on, Carl. All right. We'll see you next time on Two Keto Dudes. Dudes.